Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, bringing you remixed conversations with the world's greatest writers and thinkers. Leila Slamani writes the most deliciously dark novels. She loves to exploit her own worst fears and follow the trail of breadcrumbs. Each time she has appeared at Hay Festival, she has thrilled audiences with her ability to explore these themes with an infectious glee and good humour. At Hay Festival 2019, she spoke to lawyer Philippe Sands about her work on women's and human rights and her novel Adele. I have no identity and that's probably why I'm a writer. I'm a writer because I try to have just one identity, being a writer. And when you are a writer, you can be whoever you want. You can be an old man, sometimes I'm an old Russian man who likes drinking vodka and writing and being enraged, and sometimes I'm a young Moroccan girl, and sometimes I'm whoever I want. I live in the 19th century, I live in the 20th century, and I can totally invent myself, and I like this freedom. And when I was a little girl, I hated the fact that people used to tell me, as a Moroccan, you should do that, as a French woman, you should do that. And um, for me, it's always a very, like a sort of alienation to be put in a box because you're a Moroccan, you should act like that. Because you're a woman, you should act like that. So that's why I'm a writer, because I refuse any identity. And because I think that what's written on my passport, the fact that I'm Moroccan, that I'm French, that I'm a Muslim, says nothing about me. You can read my passport, but you know nothing about me if you know only that I'm Moroccan, French, or a Muslim. You know nothing. What was the point at which the issue of dealing with being or becoming a writer allowed you to escape the labelling of identities? I know exactly what you're saying about identity. I get the same thing. He's French, he's British, he's a Jew, he's this, he's that, and it resonates very loudly. What was your path to finding a space where you could be just you with no labels? The first one was when I was a reader. You know, when I was a reader in Rabat, I was maybe 12 or 13, and I was in my house in Morocco, a house very far from the, from the town, and I used to spend all my afternoon reading, and I was reading Anna Karenin. And I remember the moment when Anna Karenin died, and I was so sad. You can't imagine how sad I was. I was crying because she, she died, and, my, and I heard my mother saying, come to dinner. And I was like, what? What do we care about dinner? You know, Anna Karenin just died. My mother, she understands nothing to the world. And I was like, I'm Russian and I live in the 19th century and I'm an aristocrat and Anna Karenin is my family. And I don't care about those people having a pizza the night Anna Karenin died, you know. So I was this woman and I was living in another world. And so I understood that's the power of literature to make you live other lives, to make you um, cross borders, even if you don't have a passport, even if you don't come into a plane, you can travel, you can be someone else, you can understand someone else. And I was living in a country where a lot of people were telling me, you know, you have one religion, you have one culture, and you should not be a traitor to this culture, and you should stick to that. Don't try to understand all the people, and especially the Western countries, because, you know, it's all about uh, sex and degradation and all that. So no, I understood that you can understand someone else, even someone who lives in a country you've never been to, even someone who lived a hundred years before you. And that's why I love literature, because you, can, you know that you can understand anyone else. And 
as an Arab, as a little Arab girl, I understood that the world is mine and that I have uh, the possibility to universal, universalism is also mine. Sure. And I mean, you're here with an audience in which that will resonate with every single person here. Every single person is here is because they love literature and your words will resonate. Let's turn to this book. So I read it in French with the, t with the title uh, Dans le Jardin de l'Ogre, in which sort of roughly in English translates in the Garden of the Ogre. Why is the t title Adele? And tell us a bit more about Adele. <coughs> Uh, you know, I think that my British publisher thought that maybe in the Augur's Garden was not a good title in English. And um, I always trust my publishers. Uh, and I, he told me that and I said, okay, and he's really handsome and very British and I take tea with him. I'm completely in love with him. He looks like Colin first and all the time I, I call my sister to say, oh, I had tea with my publisher. So he said Adele or Ophélie, whatever he wants. Okay, okay, good title, whatever you want. So it's because I'm in love. But um, the, the title in French, Dans le Jardin de l'Ogre, yeah. was because I'm completely crazy about fairy tales. And I think that fairy tales are very, very important. And I'm very much influenced by, by that. I've always wanted to explore those very primal fears that we have in my book, Lullaby. It's the fear of losing children. And in, in this book is the fear of losing control, losing control of, of yourself and losing the path in the, in the forest and meeting with the ogre. And what I like is that, you know, children have a very particular relationship with fear. When you tell a fairy tale to, um, to a child, and my son is like that, he always says, oh, okay, I don't care about the prince, the princess, I want the ogre. And you say about the ogre or the beast or the witch. And at the end, they say, no, I don't want to sleep. I'm too scared of the ogre. And you're like, but that's exactly what you wanted. And I think that adults are exactly the same. We are very much afraid of the ogre or the witch or the beast, but at the same time, we need them. But different people react differently. So I read and devour your books. My wife would not read Lullaby precisely because it touched a fear for her as a mother that was so deep that you entrust your children to a person for a part of the day and something terrible happens to the children without giving away too much that she felt she could not read it. So... How do you deal with those readers? I, I'm with you. I'm one of your readers. But there are others... I threaten them. No. Uh, what with what? <laughs> with what? With uh, a knife or oh. a gun. No. <laughs> uh, no, what do you want me to do? I can't do nothing. But as a, as a reader, I love that. I love to be afraid. And I love to read books that disturb me, that make me feel very uncomfortable. I'm, I, I love, um, you know, f a lot of people now talk about feel-good books, and I think that I, uh, I write exactly the contrary. Feel bad feel books. Bad books. Yeah. And, but I like that, and when I read or when I go to see a painting, you know, I love Munch paintings, I love this, those kinds of, of painting, and I love to feel very disturbed by what I read or what I see or even what I, what I hear. So I can understand, but I'm not that kind of, of reader. And I won't judge, of course. How, how much, when you're writing, in the act of writing, do you imagine the reaction of the reader? Never. Period. Never. And um, I'm really sorry, but I never think of you when I write. <laughs> and I, 
really don't care about what you're going to, to think. And um, actually, when I write, I feel so free. You know, I can't, I can't express and I can't tell you how much free I feel. I feel so lonely and so free. It's like I'm in my room, the room Virginia Woolf described, this room that is my own, the room of my dreams, of my secrets, of my very bad thought. And I close the door and it's like yelling and saying whatever, whatever I want to say. You know, when I was a little girl, my parents were very like nice bourgeois person and always saying- Fren French or Moroccan style of being a parent? Is there a difference? Moroccan style. We think of the French as incredibly rigid, so I'm half French, half English. I sort of wanted our kids to go to the French lycée, and my wife, who's American and half French, said, no way on earth. The rigidity, the hierarchy is too terrible. So was that the kind of upbringing you had? Yeah, like that, and Moroccan are very rigid too with this idea of shame. In, in Morocco, it's right. always shame. You should be ashamed, ashamed of this, ashamed of that, so you're always ashamed. And my parents would always say to me, don't say this and don't say that. And when I was a little girl and a teenager, I always wanted to express myself and to say the truth and to say very bad things. And that's why probably I want to write, because I can say all the things that are impossible to say in real life. And, you know, in real life, you always have to wear a mask. And the more you become an adult and the more you understand that, that you have to behave and that you have to be nice and that you have to smile even if you don't want to smile and to be very polite. And I'm a very polite and nice person. So that's why when I write, I feel so free and I don't think about you because for the first time and the first moment in my life, I don't care. <laughs> and you write about the most private things in a very public way. And one of the things that I'm curious about is the extent to which the reaction of the audiences is, is different in different communities, in different cultures. I mean, we're going to get on to the fact there is another book. I'm just going to mention it now because it helped my reading of Adele very much. Um, in it's not in English yet, sadly. Sex and mensonge, la vie sexuelle au Maroc. Sex and lies, um, sex, sex life in Morocco, which you wrote after you had published Adele. You went on tour, I think, to Morocco, and many people came up to you and said, you have touched on a subject that is a taboo subject. Exactly. And I want to talk about it. They want to talk about it. I was in Rabat, and after a presentation just like this, I went to a cafe, and a woman sat next to me, and she said, can I speak with you? I want to tell you something. I read your book, and I loved your book, and I identify with the main character, Adele. I'm not a sex addict like her, but I can understand what she's uh, dealing with and what, what kind of person she is and her secrets. And she told me a lot of things. Never tell secrets to a writer because, of course, it <laughs> will end in a book. But I heard, uh, I was listening to everything she was saying to me, and it made me remember also of my own childhood and my own um, experience as a young woman learning about sex in a country like Morocco. In Morocco, sexual intercourse is forbidden when you're not married. It's illegal. In it's illegal. Uh, I mean, homosexuality... Serious, they should, you should tell them. I mean, of course, serious punishment. You can be arrested in, in the street because you're just having a, an orange juice with, with someone and he's like, 
is he your brother, your father, your cousin? No, so you come to, you come with me yeah. because um, you're not married with him. So homosexuality is forbidden, abortion is forbidden. In Morocco, there are 600 abortions per day, clandestine abortion, of course. So a lot of women dying or having very, very serious injuries because of, of that. And when I was a teenager, my parents, who were much more open-minded, used to tell me, okay, you can have a sexual life, but you always have to lie about that. Don't tell anyone. And when you are outside, never go outside with a man. Uh, be very, very careful. So you are uh, taught to be an hypocrite. And people are teaching you how to lie and how to do as if you were a good girl, as if you were pure, as if you were virtuous. And I was hating that. It's very, very violent when you're a teenager that for you sexuality goes with lie. Sexuality goes with hiding yourself, not being proud of what you are, because you're, for a lot of people, you're a slut, you're Sex a bad girl. Sexuality goes with being a good member of the group. Exactly. And, and when you are a woman, it goes just with shut up. When you are a woman, you can only be a virgin or a married woman. That's the only option. Right. Uh, and it's one of the themes which is of particular interest to me is the relationship between the individual and the group. I work in that domain, in law, individual crimes against humanity, the group, genocide, the protection of both the relationship between the two. And one interpretation one could put, and I'm going to come in a moment to allow you to say what this book is really about, is that it is about this balance between the individual and the group and the autonomy of the human being to express herself or himself as they wish, including in relation to their sexual activity. Yeah, you know, I was um, talking about Virginia Woolf just minutes before, and that's exactly that. We don't have a, a room of our own in Morocco, the individual doesn't exist yet and that's why it's not a democracy yet and uh, I think that's it has to go together. That's why probably the, the government and the authorities don't want people to have a sexual life and to assume this sexual life because when you own your own body, you can be an individual and you have a dignity and you can defend yourself. But when a policeman can come and humi humiliate you in front of your boyfriend or your girlfriend and take you to prison, of course you don't have this dignity and you're not an individual. So it's much more political than religious. A lot of people think that it has to go with Islam, but I think that it's much more political than religious. That becomes very clear in this book, which I think is an immensely courageous book. Actually, I said to my agent just before, but I'm very delighted it is coming out in English, that if this book was, did not have a contract to be translated into English, I would translate it into English. This is a really important book, but it's a courageous book, and it's a provocative book in a good way. I'm going to just translate one bit just to for you to explain, because it's exactly on this point. To exercise your sexual citizenship, to make use of your body as you wish, to lead a sex life without risk, source of pleasure and free of all coercions, are fundamental needs and rights which should be inalienable and guaranteed for all. It's a very quick translation, but they will get the sense of what you're saying. So the heart of the ability to have sex in the way you want, with who you want, when you want, where you want, is for you a fundamental human right. Of course, and what is very difficult in a country like Morocco, but also Algeria and Tunisia, is when you defend that, people tell you, 
oh, but it's not very important. You're talking about sex, but what do we care about sex in a country that is very poor, where we have a lot of other issues? But that's not true, because with sex comes a lot of things. As I was saying before, dignity. Uh, violence, because when um, you have to hide to have uh, an intercourse with a man, of course men can take advantage of women, and the woman can't go to the police to say she was raped, because the police is going to say, but why were you with this man? It's illegal to be with a man without being married. So you were raped, but you're going to prison for being raped. Uh, you can't get an abortion, so of course you're endangered for every intercourse. So I think that if you don't have those rights, if you don't own your body, if you don't have the, the feeling that you count as a citizen, if you're just an object, because a woman in a country like Morocco is just an object, I don't own my own sex. Everyone has something to say about my virginity. And if I'm not a virgin, the day I'm getting married, a man has the right to tell me to go out of the house because I was not a virgin or because I didn't bleed sure. after the act. So that's absolutely terrible. That's a lot, a lot, a lot of individual tragedies that, anyone, that no one wants to talk about. Sexy Mensonge, has that been published in Morocco? Yes, and it has been translated in, in Arabic. And it's, uh, you know, in Morocco, you, we don't have a lot of uh, bookstores, so people, they sell it on the floor. Sam in is the, that. Yeah, exactly, for like 20 or 30 dirham. And I'm very happy with, the, with that. And I can see people, you know, hiding it and giving it to, to, you, to young, uh, young friends. And that's very good. And what's the official reaction to it, if any? Oh, this poor woman is obsessed with sex, always writing about sex, sex, sex. She must have a problem in her own life. Oh, the, always the same, you know. She's, uh, she's depraved and she's working for the West and uh, she has a problem with her own identity. She hates herself and uh, those kind of things. And the, the private conversations with the people who come and find you in bars when you go and speak? in Morocco. I must say, say that... Uh, they, they, won't, they won't know. I've read the book. I, have a, I know what the conversations are. I was completely fascinated by them. I must say that I was very, very disappointed by my own social class, by the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie is very violent to me because they say, why do you go to France and, or Great Britain or all over the world to speak about that and to give this very bad image of our country? We don't need to speak about homosexual and abortion. And I'm like, I don't understand. You're against that. You're against those laws. And I think you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, but if we want to speak about that, we should speak of that just between us, not with other people, okay? And but people who are really dealing with that, people from different backgrounds, they come to me and they kiss me and they are very nice to me, especially in the homosexual LGBT um, community. They always come to me and they thank me very much because I fight a lot for the, the rights of homosexuals. So yeah, there are a lot of gratitude from this community. Let's turn now against that background to Adele, which I read cover to cover. I don't want to summarize what it is and what its essence is. I think that's for you. It's your book. If people ask you, what is, what is Adele about, what do you say? Um, it's the story of a woman, Adele, who is married to uh, Richard, a young doctor, very nice man. She's she had, they are they um, are parents of a young boy, Lucien, who is three years and a half. She is a journalist, and um, she looks like a very nice and a gentle and happy woman, but she hates her job. She hates her husband. She hates being a mother. She thinks 
that all this is very tedious, very difficult. Just pause and ask, is that familiar? <laughs> there will be a lot of people. There will be a lot of people here for whom this has. Sorry, you don't, I'm not. I'm not going to ask anyone to put their hands up. But it will have the ring of truth. Yeah, that's that's probably why I write. Uh, I wrote it. And why you sell so many copies? No, but you know, I think that this woman is like many women or many men, many many person. She thought that life was going to be very exciting. That uh, being a journalist and getting married and having this life in Paris, that everything was going to be exciting and everything is so boring and not that interesting and especially sex. You know, I think that today we speak a lot about sex and sex. And when you look, when you watch a movie and when you watch a TV show, you read a book. You and when I was a teenager, I was like, wow, everyone is talking about sex. It must be so extraordinary, sex. And my first experience of sex, I was like, oh, that's that sex, like two naked people making weird noise or. And no, but for me it was very prosaic, trivial, very trivial. And I wanted to describe that, that sex is not that glamorized thing that you see in Hollywood movies, that sex very often in the majority of cases, I think. Mundane. It, yeah, it's very trivial, very disappointing. It's not that... This resonates with every person. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, because we are in the United Kingdom, where normally polite people don't talk yeah. about these things. So... <laughs> Let's talk about it. I'm, it is, you're right. Let's that's, talk about that's... sex, baby. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I wanted to talk about that, how this woman who had, you know, and I think that this woman is also very inspired by classical characters. I was talking about Anna Karenine before, or Emma Bovary. Of course, there are a lot of references to Madame Bovary, those kinds of women who are married, they have a child, they have a nice life, they have a job or whatever, but they want more. And in classic literature, all the women who want more are punished. They kill themselves or they are killed by their husband. And I wanted to ask this question, is it possible for a woman to want more than what is supposed to make her happy? A married life, a child and a nice job. So what it is to want more when you are a woman? And this woman finds more in ways that will be familiar to many people, not publicly. She enjoys or desires having sex in situations that will, in polite English company and probably French company and Moroccan company, raise eyebrows. She will go to a dinner party with her husband's colleague and will decide to focus her attentions on him. Explain more, a little bit more about what you are... What, what are you telling us by telling the story? She's a hunter, and at the same time, she wants the ogre. She lives in this very nice and boring forest with a, a very nice and boring husband, and she wants the ogre, she wants the beast, she wants something to happen. And even if this thing that, is, that will happen is going to destroy her life, she accepts the idea that maybe she will destroy her life, but she needs something exciting. She needs to feel something in her bone, in her flesh, and sometimes she needs also to be hurt and to uh, have very bad experiences with, with men, but 
she's not someone who is looking for sex for pleasure or for uh, uh, for love or for romanticism. She's looking for something else, and I couldn't define what it is because, you know, I don't think that a writer understands completely uh, his characters. Uh, very often, people t uh, ask me, "But why is she doing that?" or "What?" Sometimes I don't know. Sometimes she is leading me to that. She is telling me that she needs to do that, and I write it. But I don't fully understand her motivation. There's a sense in reading the book, and I think you've written about it or talked about it, of imprisonment, that a family situation encloses us. You have family, I have family, many people have family, and that what she is looking for takes her outside a form of imprisonment. Say a little bit more about that, because, again, it comes back to the group and the individual. I mean, we're, each of us a member of many different groups. The, the smallest is our family, and then our friends, and then our town, or our street, and then our town, and then our whatever. You know, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The family is a group. Her desire for escape, or something more. All my books are about that. You know, Lullaby yeah. and Adele are about that. I've always thought that family is a prison, of course, and that you can feel very melancholic and very sad with people that you love at the same time, but you feel very lonely sometimes with them, and you feel guilty to feel lonely with them, and that's a very mixed and terrible feeling. But I've always wanted to explore the the house, you know, the household, because we always describe the house as a very safe place, a place of tenderness. The violence is outside and we come back home and it's safe and it's nice. But it's not true, because the first place of violence is the house. Violence towards children, if you look at the, the rates even of incest or rape, the first ones are in the house, in the same family. And the house is a place of violence between men and women between the parents and the children, between the parents and the, the domestics, the, the, les employés. So I've always wanted to explore that because we do as if family was a, always very so, so nice and so soft and so tender, but it's not. It's full of unspoken violence, untold violence, very silent violence, and this violence interests me a lot. And the fact, I think, that women, more than men, are supposed to be happy with that, Virginia Woolf, again, this very beautiful text, uh, The Angel of the Household. Woman is supposed to be so happy to sacrifice herself and to serve everyone and to think about people before thinking of herself because a woman is not supposed to be selfish and she's supposed to be so happy that everyone is happy and I don't count, you count, and I don't care. And I'm, I want to explore that also the right for women to being selfish. Where is the place for the selfishness of women? Where is the place for the individualism of women? So one interpretation of that is that it is an expression of a, a deep connection with the desire to be an individual. And here is, in a sense, the puzzle. Because of all the oppressors, the greatest oppressor is the state, even more, in my view, well, at a, on a level with organized religion. And yet, and it's not a critique at all, but I'm just curious about it, you've taken up a position, not as a representative of a state, but to assist a state. And I'm curious at an internal level how, as I'm sure you do square it, how you rationalize that. I, I can see many ways of rationalizing it, but I, I'd like to hear about it. 
Yeah, you know, the, the President Macron, he, he offered me the possibility to be Minister of Culture and I refused it because as I told you, I don't, yeah. I want to be free and I want to do whatever I want and I'm too lazy and I want to, <laughs> to, to, to sleep late in the morning and I had to, to wake up early so the idea of being a minister for me is a total nightmare. If you had taken it, she, she's come to Wales, Leila's come to Wales with her husband and her kids, you'd never be able to do that. Yeah, exactly, so that's why I, I refused that. But when he told me, do you want to represent French language inside of an international organization called International Organization of Francophonie, I remembered something, is that when I was um, a teenager in Morocco, I used to speak French with my parents. I was a, a member of the Francophone community in, in Morocco. In Morocco, we speak French, Arabic, Darija, that is our common language, Spanish, Barbarian, so a lot of languages. And actually, in the majority of Francophone countries, people speak many languages. France is the only country where we speak only French. And I wanted to defend that, because when I was a, a teenager... Sorry, you wanted to defend what? The multilingualism. Oh, yeah, OK, right. Plurilingualism. Yeah. Plurilingualism. 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 Or something like that. We just made up a word. Because when I was, you know, when I was a teenager, everyone was saying, you're not a real Moroccan because you speak French. And when in France people want to learn Arabic in, in, the, in, in school, people say, no, you shouldn't uh, learn Arabic because you're going to become a, an Islamist and a jihadist and to kill people because of Islam. So there is always this confusion between a language and an ideology. And I hate this idea that because you speak one language, you are this or that. Because you speak French, you're a traitor and you are with the colonialism and you hate your country. Because you speak Arabic, you are with the jihadist and the Salafist. And I think that we should take out yeah. ideology from language. And language is something that makes you free. The more language you speak and the more human you are. And I think that if you want to speak an, a language, it's because you want to share things, because you want to make love, because you want to seduce, because you want to have fun with someone. And we have to stop with all this crap of uh, all the time colonialism and culture. And no, I don't want to speak that because that's the, the language of Koran or of this. No, I want to put more, more freedom in language. And that's why I accepted that. Because I want to say to yeah. those who say I'm a traitor, yes, I'm a traitor. And I enjoy it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Next week will be the turn of Eric Ngale Charles, who tells the story of his departure from Cameroon and how he survived trafficking and homelessness in Russia before coming to live in Wales. As ever, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and give us a very good rating. This podcast was presented by me, Poppy Evans. Until next time. Mm-hmm.